0: I'm going to read this evening from the Jerusalem Bible. Mark 16 from verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary of Magdala, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices with which to go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb, just as the sun was rising. They had been saying one t- to, uh, to another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked, they could see that the stone, which was very big, had already been rolled back. On entering the tomb, they saw a young man in a white robe seated on the right-hand side, and they were struck with amazement. But he said to them, There is no need For alarm, you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See, here is the place where they laid him. But you must go and tell his disciples and Peter. He is going before you to Galilee. It is there you will see him, just as he told you. And the women came out and ran away from the tomb because they were frightened out of their wits, and they said nothing to a soul, for they were afraid. Having risen in the morning on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary of Magdala, from whom he had cast out seven devils. She then went to those who had been his companions, and who were mourning and in tears, and told them, But they did not believe her when they heard her say that he was alive and that she had seen him. After this, he showed himself under another form to two of them as they were on their way into the country. These went back and told the others who did not believe them either. Lastly, he showed himself to the eleven themselves while they were at table. He reproached them for their incredulity and obstinacy because they had refused to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go out to the whole world. Proclaim the good news to all creation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. These are the signs that will be associated with believers. In my name, they will cast out devils. They will have the gift of tongues. They will pick up snakes in their hands and be unharmed should they drink deadly poison. They will lay their hands on the sick who will recover. And so the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven. There, at the right hand of God, he took his place. While they, going out, preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word by the signs that accompanied it. I want this evening to go on from last week without really going over anything of what we said. You will remember that we were just dealing with this first point, this first subsection of this last division of Mark's Gospel uh, which we have entitled, The Servant of the Lord Exalted to the Right Hand of God. And we were dealing with that first subsection which was the resurrection of the Servant of the Lord. And we got to verse 14. We had completed verse 13. Now we come to verse um, 14. And finally here, Mark records the appearance of the risen Christ to the eleven whilst they were having the evening meal together. It is quite clear that with the exception of Thomas, uh, this particular instance was conclusive as far as the apostles were concerned. Christ reproached them for their unbelief and obstinacy of heart, because they had refused to believe those who had seen him alive from the dead. Now, in actual fact, it's put very simply. We'll read the verse, verse 14. And afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves, as they were reclining at table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. Now, if you'll just look at one or two of these words. First of all, that little word, afterward. It is not the same word as is used in verse 12, where it says, and after that. It is correctly translated, afterward, but it has with it the suggestion of at length or at last. Afterward, at length, he appeared to the eleven. Mark does not mean that this was the final appearance of Christ, that after this appearance he did not appear again. In fact, we know that he did appear a number of times after this. What he means is that this appearance of Christ to the eleven was conclusive in bringing the apostles to clear faith. It also indicates perhaps that there was some purpose of the Lord in leaving the eleven till almost the last. We have already pointed that out in our study last week, how the Lord could so easily have appeared to the eleven right at the beginning and really convinced them of his resurrection. But instead, he first appears... To Mary Magdalene. Then he uh, uh, appears to the two other women. Both of whom, all of whom come back and report but are not really believed. Then he appears to two humble disciples on the road to Emmaus who return and are not really believed. And finally and only then, at length, does he appear to the eleven. That it was conclusive in bringing the eleven... To clear faith in Christ's resurrection is apparent from the much fuller accounts that we have in Luke and John. Now you will have to read those, I hope some of you have, because it will make this study much more interesting and relevant uh, to you. But if you um, turn particularly to Luke uh, 24 and verse 41... We read this, and while they still could not believe it for joy and were marvelling, he said. This is a, a, a difference from their incredulity before, it was obstinacy before, but now they couldn't believe for joy and were marvelling. That's a, a real step forward. And then in verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Something quite conclusive happened. Their incredulity gave way to living faith. And that in turn led to an opening of their mind to the scriptures. You've got the same thing in John and chapter 20. John and chapter 20 and verse um, 20. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his sides. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Um, Meaning, really, that they were convinced. And once they were convinced that it really was him, they were full of joy. And then in verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Another point about this verse 14, Mark gives no explicit indication as to the time of day other than in th- informing us that the eleven were having a meal together. From Luke, we learn that it must have been the latter part of Sunday at the very least because he says that Christ appeared among them when the two who had returned from Emmaus were recounting their experience, and there was evidently some discussion about it. Luke says, suddenly he appeared among them. Uh, You'll find that again in Luke 24 from verse 33 to 36. John says, and therefore, of course, it must have been in the latter part of Sunday. Those two uh, disciples couldn't have got to Emmaus, broken bread with the Lord, and got all the way back to Jerusalem. It was only a Sabbath day's journey, that's perfectly true, but still, um, it must have been the latter part of Sunday. John says that it was the evening of the day Christ arose. If you look again in John 20, um, and verse 19... He says, when therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, on that day. Now, if you look at chapter 20 and verse 1, it says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. So, in fact, what he means is that it was in the evening of Sunday that it happened. It would seem, therefore, from Luke and John and Mark. That the meal that the, the, uh, the eleven were having together was the main e- meal of the day, the evening meal. Um, fourthly, will you notice the little uh, word in your authorized version and revised version, sat at meat? Or if you have the revised, stand vers- well, revised standard version, set- sat at table? Or the New American Standard Bible, better reclining at table. The normal custom was not to sit up at the table as it is today. Um, The normal custom then was to recline on couches around the table. Thus, the word is literally to lie up. Um, You didn't sit up. (laughs) You sort of reclined. You you were sort of more on a horizontal level um, than a vertical level. Uh, A fifth point, to the eleven, this is how silly some liberal scholars can get, but I think it's a point we have to make, that's why I'm taking all these points one by one. This does not mean eleven people literally but was the collective name given for the apostles at that time. They referred to so It's a very interesting little um, evidence of the authenticity of these records, that they did not refer to them as the Twelve, but referred to them as the Eleven. It was the collective name given to them, the Eleven, just like sometimes we speak of the Big Three um, or the Big Four, whatever else it is. Um, uh, here we they refer to the eleven it didn't mean that the eleven every one of them was present it meant that the ten was the eleven now very interestingly um, uh, uh, Thomas wasn't present we learned that from John's account of it, Thomas was not present there were only ten present even more interestingly Paul speaks of the Lord appearing to Peter and then to the Twelve. Now that's very interesting that a generation later, more or less, the apostle Paul referred to them as the Twelve. You see, it was a collective meaning. In actual fact, it was neither eleven precisely nor twelve precisely, but ten. To quibble about it is quite remarkable, Um, but people do. They say that this is a reason why they can't trust the Word of God. In actual fact, I find it the most remarkable evidence for trusting the word of God, that here we have in the record something left untampered, the eleven, because it was the collective name for them all. And then another point, will you notice, he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Their unbelief and hardness of heart. The risen Christ reproached them for their incredulity and stubbornness. Unbelief is not here to be understood, listen carefully to me, as total disbelief, or as being void of faith, but as incredulity, as a slowness to believe. The apostles were not void of faith. They were very, very slow to believe. They were just incredulous. Faith was there. That faith which was the gift of God, of which our Lord Jesus has said of Peter, I have prayed for thee, thy faith fail not, was in fact there, even with this incredulity. We all know this so well in our own personal experience, surely. That we can have living faith, we've come to the Lord, and yet we're so slow to respond in faith to what the Lord commands or what the Lord does. We are incredulous. And then again, hardness of heart does not indicate callousness, but rather stubbornness or obstinacy. One finds in the work of God that unbelief, listen carefully, and obstinacy go hand in hand. Some of the most obstinate people I've known amongst believers have been the incredulous. In the same way, true faith and a tender, open heart are also linked together. No one can say, that it's because they're a rationalist as a believer. They're a rationalist that they find it hard to believe. It is nonsense. It goes back to the heart. Where there is an open, tender, sensitive heart to the Lord, you find living, dynamic faith. Where there is a stubbornness and an obstinacy, an entrenchment in our own conceptions, our own understandings, and our own opinions so often, limited, you will find incredulity, unbelief. It is amazing to see in God's work and service how latent unbelief and obstinacy can exist even when God is present in the most marvellous manner. You will remember that word about the, bel- the believers in um, the wilderness in Hebrews and chapter 4, where it says, because it was not mixed with faith in those um, who believed, they perished. They saw the manna every day, bar one, of every week of the 40 years. They saw the water come out of the rock, miraculous. They saw the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They saw the Lord thunder on Mount Sinai. And in the presence of miracle after miracle after miracle, still there was that latent unbelief and obstinacy. It is that that gives rise to murmuring, to discontent, to backbiting, to faction. Such unbelief always leads to disobedience in the end. Now take to heart my words. Such unbelief always leads in the end to disobedience. In the same way, true faith leads always to obedience. It is the obedience of faith. May the Lord deliver us all from that stubbornness of unbelief that some think of as being real. God preserve us from it. When in fact it is nothing more than sheer unbelief covered up under the guise of discernment or shrewdness. It isn't. It is not being real at all. All it leads to is a real falling away and disobedience. What we need is that tender heart that trusts in God and does his will and works his works. Furthermore it was to bring this lesson home to the eleven clearly that the law did not appear to them straight away. If the people of God were to be led in the right way, their leaders above everyone else must be the possessors of living faith. Unbelief and hardness of heart cannot be left to be dressed up in the guise of caution wisdom, and common sense. And that is why the Lord left the eleven to last. He wanted to settle this matter with them by giving them time to find that within their own hearts was this unbelief and hardness. It is a very interesting thing, if I may say this, since it's being recorded, and maybe of help, to leadership, not only here but elsewhere, that in the East, the shepherd always leads the flock. He is never the brake to the flock. He leads the flock. When leadership leads the flock, there's no need to have breaks. Because the very leadership itself, because it's strong, it's clear, it's sensitive to God, it's open-hearted to God, and has living, dynamic faith, there's no need to be holding back all the time. Our great problem in leadership is again and again, all over the world, we find the leadership holds back, whereas the people see more clearly sometimes what is the way of the Lord. It was so with the apostles. Those women had made a discovery which was the most tremendous discovery in the universe. Those two humble disciples had made a discovery which was to change the face of history. But the 11 apostles, they treated it as idle tales, nonsense, foolish talk. That's what unbelief and hardness of heart can do to us. Mark tells us that, quite clearly, that every time the report was brought back to the 11 and the West, they didn't believe. Even when the Lord finally appeared amongst them, in Luke's account, he informs us that they were so startled and frightened by the Lord's appearance, thinking that they were seeing a ghost, that he had asked them why such doubts and questionings arose in their hearts. It was not that they had no faith, or that they were callous toward God. It was rather that an obstinacy and stubbornness arose through an evil heart of unbelief. Now I have seen this in the work of God again and again and again that leaders, one leader or a number of leaders can hold up the whole way of God through sheer obstinacy arising out of unbelief. It is not that there's no living faith. It's just that there is a slowness to respond to God. A slowness to trust the Lord. That slowness to believe seriously hindered the eleven by rooting them in their own devious reasonings, the devious reasonings of their limited understanding. Thank God that he was so merciful and gracious that he uh, persevered with them as he does with us all. It is abundantly clear that it was in this appearance of Christ that the whole matter was settled once and for all for the apostles. Even in the case of Thomas, who was absent on this occasion, it led to his final deliverance from doubt. You'll see that in John 20 from verses 24 to 29. Mark simply goes on to record the commissioning of them all to the service of God. The matter had been settled. What a wonderful thing it is when we allow God to settle an issue in our hearts. And when such things as unbelief, even where there is living faith, if you understand the paradox, and hardness of heart, can be brought to the Lord to be dealt with. It's a great thing when matters get settled. Seventhly, a seventh point I'd like to make on this, it is most instructive to note that both Luke and John record that on this occasion the Lord showed them his hands, his feet, and his side, and invited them to touch him. He even went on to eat some broiled fish. He was proving to them once and for all that it was not his spirit that was visiting them, nor some apparition. It was not even himself with another and new body. It was the same Lord Jesus whom they had known. Even the words he used are explicit. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bone as ye see that I have. It was this which finally convinced them. I wonder whether that's ever really come home to us. in the notes, you, you will see I've given you the account in Luke and the verses and in John. You really read through them, you cannot but be impressed. In both accounts, both Luke and John, our Lord refers to his um, hands and his feet, and in the other account, to his hands and his side, and says, Touch me. In Luke's account, it says, when they could not believe for joy and were marveling, evidently they had gingerly touched him and come near and inspected and really this is the Lord. It's not a spirit. It's not a ghost. It's not an apparition. It is the Lord then he sort of said is there any broiled fish and they got some boiled fish and he actually ate it it's almost funny isn't it I suppose they did laugh for joy um when they saw him eating fish and he said now then don't you see I'm eating this a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone such as you see I've got. It finally convinced them. Luke says, while they could not believe it for joy and were marvelling, John says they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Then another point I'd like to make on this verse. Um, There were two other matters to do with this occasion which Mark does not record. He records the commission of the disciples only. Firstly, the risen servant of the Lord opened their minds to understand the scriptures. How wonderful that must have been. He took all three divisions of the Jewish arrangement of the scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, and he began to show them how the Messiah had to suffer to die and to be raised on the third day, and how that in his name repentance and remission of sins had to be preached beginning at Jerusalem in all the nations. I think it must have been the most thrilling thing to have heard the Lord expounding the, the scriptures. To, you don't forget, it wasn't just the fact that he had to, to die, he had to suffer, and he had to die, and had to be raised from the dead. Um, the fact is that he also spoke about it going forth to all the nations from Jerusalem. That is also in the Word of God. Isn't that wonderful? It must have been a marvellous occasion. They had been so dull of understanding. Now he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. Mark only refers to this in Christ's command to go and preach the gospel. But you know, when Peter stood up on that day of Pentecost and preached that marvellous sermon on Joel, where did he get it from? from his risen Lord. I suppose our Lord had said, of course, this is what Joel spoke about. It's going to happen not many days hence and many other quotations from the Old Testament that they spoke from, it it all went back to this opening of their mind to the Scriptures. How how marvelous it is. Mark only um, infers it in this, that he says the Lord commanded them to go and preach the gospel, and then a little later it says the Lord confirmed the word by the signs which attended it. How we need the risen Christ to open our minds to understand uh, His Word. Do you think that it is mere intelligence that understands the Word of God? Mere intelligence finds the Bible a completely closed, dusty, dry book. It is the Spirit of God alone who can open out understanding of the Scriptures. The natural man receiveth not the things of God, for they are folly to him, They they are foolishness to him because they are spiritually discerned. Oh, we need it. And the second thing was this. The servant of the Lord breathed upon them, saying, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Now, all this happened in this appearance. Well, that's why I call it a conclusive visitation of Christ. You have these wonderful things that all happened in this one thing. First, he showed them his hands, his feet, his side, and invited them to touch him. Then he ate broiled fish till they were convinced. Then he opened their their mind to understanding the scriptures and began to explain from all three great sections of the Jewish arrangement of the Bible. The prophecies concerning himself and the gospel that he was commissioning them to preach. Then he breathed upon them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And then he commissioned them, Go forth and preach the gospel to every creature tremendous isn't it really when you begin to understand now take this second matter which which mark does not refer to uh, receive ye the holy spirit he breathed upon them and said receive ye the holy spirit john uh, uh, chapter 20 and verse 22 he was making a clear distinction between the indwelling of the holy spirit and the empowering of the holy spirit since the spirit was only to be poured out on the day of Pentecost. And this distinction could therefore have been overlooked or missed. Note that the Lord did not say, ye shall receive the Holy Spirit. If he had only breathed on them and said, ye shall receive the Holy Spirit, it would have cleared up the problem. How could he say, breathing on them, receive ye the Holy Spirit, when in actual fact the Holy Spirit was not poured out until the day of Pentecost. It seems quite clear to me that our Lord was deliberately, for our sakes, making a distinction between receiving the Holy Spirit at new birth and the anointing of the Holy Spirit for power, for service, for gifts, for equipment. I, I would like to make this even more uh, emphatic. In Luke's account, he tells us quite clearly that our Lord said to them, But you are to stay in the city until, and you know, I'll say it exactly, but he said, But I am sending forth upon you the promise of the Father, but you shall stay in the city. Until ye be clothed with power from on high, John says he must then have breathed upon them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. The same occasion when he said, Wait in the city till ye be clothed with power from on high, he breathed upon them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. It is quite clear to me our Lord is not the Lord of confusion or disorder it is quite clear that he was differentiating between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We are indebted to John for informing us of this act of the Lord in breathing upon them. It is of paramount importance in the service of God that we should know both the indwelling and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. There can be no understanding of the Word of God apart from the Holy Spirit. There can be no effective preaching or service apart from the Holy Spirit. And there can be no signs following apart from the Holy Spirit's ministry and work. We must know and experience both the indwelling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. So what can we say about this marvelous 14th verse? For no other event is there so much evidence as for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The empty tomb, the undisturbed grave clothes, the incredulous unbelieving disciples, the showing of his hands and side and feet and his eating of boiled fish, the untampered records which have been uh, uh, passed down to us. The existence of a dynamic church. Immediately after the death of Jesus. And our own personal experience. Of the risen Lord. It is all evidence enough. That Christ has risen from the dead. On Sunday evening. If the Lord helps me. I will speak on evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now let's pass on to the commission uh, of the servant of the Lord. I think we could do with that door open now. It seems to be getting quite warm in here. Thank you. Um, The commission of the servant of the Lord. Whilst Mark does not dwell on some of the matters we find in the accounts of Luke and John, he records the commission of the Lord more fully. The risen servant of the Lord now commissions the disciples to go forth with the good news of the salvation of God and reach the whole universe. They are to serve as he has served, expressing the same character as he has expressed in his service. Wherever there are those who become the recipients of living faith, there will be accompanying signs indicating that the risen and ascended Christ is with them and in them. Let's read those verses 15 to uh, to, uh, 18. And he said to them, Go into all the world. And preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it shall not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now first of all, will you please notice verse 15 Go ye into all the world, and as the authorised version puts it, preach the gospel to every creature. The extent of the commission could not be made more clear. Go forth to every part of the world. That's how the New English Bible renders it. Go the whole world over. That's Weymouth's, rather lovely, rendering. There is no part of the world to be excluded or ignored or overlooked. And then notice the next phrase. And proclaim the gospel to every creature. That's how J.B. Phillips renders it. Preach the good news to everyone, everywhere. That's the living Bible rendering. The word translated, creature, in the authorised version, preach the gospel to every creature, can also be rendered creation. That's why in the Revised Standard Version, in the New American Standard Bible, a number of other modern versions, you have to all creation. Preach the good news to all creation. I personally find that phrase, preach the good news to all creation, peculiarly um, awkward. Um, I think it is much simpler, as in the authorised version, as Phillips has rendered it, preach the good news to every creature. You see, this word does mean creation, but it also means creature, in the sense that creature is created being, mankind. Some have suggested that it is, in fact, a Greek rendering of a Semitism, a Semitic phrase meaning all mankind. I don't think it means, as legend has it, that we're to go out and preach to the birds um, and animals, although I have no doubt at all, listen to me, that the gospel has very much to do with the natural creation and the natural order of things. That once man has been reconciled to God, then there will be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. But it seems to me quite clear, whatever we might feel, that here we have the widest commission possible. We are, are not told to just go and preach to the elect. We are not told to just go and proclaim the gospel to those who will believe. We are told to go into every part of the world and proclaim the good news to every creature. As the Living Bible perhaps puts it, best of all, to everyone everywhere. That's the way of getting over the Greek, this Greek word, creation. To everyone everywhere. It is a gospel as wide as creation itself. Secondly, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. That's the New American Standard Bible rendering of verse 16. We are not commissioned merely to go to those who are sympathetic and ready to believe. Our commission is to declare and announce the good news of Jesus Christ, whether there be faith or disbelief. Note that baptism follows a living faith. He who has believed and has been baptized, not he who has been baptized and has believed, as some would have us understand it. They are linked together with faith preceding baptism. It is perfectly true, I'm, I, I take the point, that baptism here is linked together with believing almost side by side. But it is faith that comes first. It is not suggested here, as some would have us believe, that to be saved one must be baptized. It is disbelief that condemns us to judgment. He that, dis- that has disbelieved is condemned. And it is living faith which brings us to salvation. Nevertheless, let me say this, nevertheless, baptism is important. It is not to be regarded lightly. And the very fact of its inclusion in this statement, in such a statement as this, must make us think deeply and seriously. Indeed, I would put it like this. The Word of God knows no one who has truly believed who has not been baptized. Thirdly, was this occasion the same one as recorded in Matthew 28 verses 16 to 20? Now I think we better just read those. They're very well-known verses. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. But the eleven disciples went into Galilee, unto the mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and spake unto them, saying, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Now, I wonder how many here have in their minds thought, now Mark's version, of this is go ye into every part of the world and proclaim the good news to um, every creature, to everyone everywhere. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that disbelieves shall be condemned in my name and these are the signs that will accompany them, those that believe and so on. I think not. It seems reasonably clear that Matthew records the commission of Christ as given in Galilee, probably on the occasion which Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse five, when 500 were present and saw the risen Lord, including the 11. This occasion,, of which Mark speaks, was in Jerusalem, when only the apostles were present and would have preceded the occasion recorded by Matthew. It seems to me reasonably clear that Mark's account is a a commission which is to us all, but was given privately to the apostles. Whereas the marvelous commission in Matthew 28 was a much more public commission, given probably in the presence of the 500, including the apostles. Fourthly, and here we come to one of the great controversial points, These signs shall accompany though them that believe. Verse 17, Revised Version, Revised Standard Version, New American Standard Bible. Over these words there has been much controversy and debate, nor is the conflict over. What, what did Christ mean when he spoke Of these signs which accompany those who believe. Now notice carefully, please, certain things. Firstly, shall accompany them. These signs shall accompany them that believe. Shall follow them that believe, the authorized version. Accompany is a better rendering. Literally, it is to follow close up. These signs shall follow close up or these signs shall follow side by side with them that believe. In verse 20, we have a slightly different word with the same root. There it is literally to follow after, or follow close upon, thus the Revised Standard Version uh, confirming it, the word, with signs attending it, or following upon it. One thing is quite clear. Clear-cut signs were to accompany both the preaching and the believing. Secondly, will you please note, those who believe. Now I come to a good point here. Revised Standard Version, New American Standard Bible. Those who believe. The signs accompany living faith, whether in those who preach, as in verse 20, confirming the word, or those who believe as a result of the preaching. It is interesting that the Lord puts the emphasis on those who believe. The interpretation that these signs were only only to be connected with the apostolic ministry of the early church has not too sound a basis here. Why didn't our Lord say quite clearly that these signs will accompany the preaching? then we might have felt, well, those who say that it was something to do with the apostolic ministry of the early church and ceased with their death may have had ground. But our Lord seems quite deliberately to have said, these signs shall accompany those who believe. And then later it is clear that it is to do with the preaching as well. I find that a most interesting point. The Lord could easily have said these signs will accompany the preaching or the preachers. Instead, he gives it a much wider application. Furthermore, such signs never accompany Christian cynicism or Christian agnosticism or an evil heart of unbelief. We learn here how essential it is to use the shield of faith in the service of God, whether we are preaching or whether we are serving in other ways. Many a servant of the Lord has been brought inwardly to the place where he no longer believes God will save those he preaches to, let alone act in any other way. These signs will accompany those who believe. I have never yet seen a sign worked by the Spirit of God where there is Christian cynicism. I travel all over the place, and I go in all kinds of, uh, uh, of, of groups. But I've never yet found a, uh, signs following where there is that kind of Christian cynicism. Thirdly, these signs. The word means a sign, a mark, an indication, a token. The word miracle is a different word and denotes the power inherent in the act or wonder performed. The word sign denotes that the miracle is a token, a mark, an indication of the presence of God. Thus the risen servant of the Lord wants to signify that he is with us in our service no matter what confronts us. Oh, when I read some of the accounts, Of some, take just Willie Burton alone. I think that one life and that one ministry must be the biggest embarrassment some of these dear folks have who believe that these signs went out with the early church. How do they explain such things? Fourthly, in my name. It is not in our own name that that these signs follow, company. Not in the name of apostles. Not in the name of a teaching. Not in the name of a movement or a denomination. It's not even in the name of the true church. It is to be in his name alone that these signs will be performed. Furthermore, his name is not a charm to be placed at the beginning of a prayer or at its end. It means that we have been made one body in Christ. The risen head is continuing to fulfill his service through his body. Thus we have the book of Acts. It is the Lord continuing both to do and to teach in and through his body. Now another point here and I will try to put it as lucidly as I can, all those who accept the full authority and inspiration of the Bible recognize the validity of these signs promised by the risen Christ. The point of controversy is whether these signs were meant only for the beginning phase of church history or meant to continue throughout its history to the coming again of the Lord. Some dogmatically claim that these were initial signs ushering in a new age to cease shortly after its commencement. They were meant to be, so they say, the indication that the church was founded by God. Once it was established, there was no further need of signs, and they ceased. They point out that these signs attended the major moves forward of the early church, Uh, Following our Lord's words, ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. They point out first that you have the first great major move forward in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, in Jerusalem and Judea. In Acts chapter 8, you have the next great major move forward with signs in Samaria. In Acts chapter 10, you have Cornelius' household and the Gentiles, upon which the Holy Spirit fell, and signs followed. When this had been accomplished, that is, the church had been established, they believed the signs ceased. And even point to 1 Corinthians 13, whether there be tongues, they shall cease, As a scriptural basis for this teaching. Others would confine the signs to the twelve apostles and Paul. Poor Paul. Um, They had a problem there with Paul. So they have to say the twelve apostles and Paul. Still others with the completion of the canon of scripture. Our problem with this interpretation is simple but profound. Nowhere does the risen servant of the Lord as much as infer, let alone suggest, that these accompanying signs will cease. Indeed, the plain meaning of his words are are quite clear. Wherever in the world the gospel is preached and people believe, these signs will accompany them. And, dear friends, they have. It doesn't matter whether you go back to the beginning of the China in the mission or whether you go back to the beginning of other great missionary movements in different parts. Signs accompanied the preaching of the gospel. The history of the true church of God does not bear out the view that these signs ceased with the early church. Throughout its history, every time there has been a movement of the Spirit of God, signs have accompanied it. I go back to the Paulicians, or the Bogomils, or the Albigenses, or the Waldenses, the Anabaptists, the Huguenots, the Prophets of Cevennes, to the Quakers, no more charismatic movement in the world than the Quakers although they never sung Um, my word the early Methodists the early Moravians where shall we end the Irvingites that despised group in the middle of the last century where shall we end to the modern Pentecostals and to the charismatic where may I ask had these gifts ceased right back in the 4th century there was a group called Montanists who believed in speaking in tongues and prophesying. So when did these gifts cease? Good question. (laughs) It is surely a most dangerous attitude to attribute all such signs to the devil, even if at times there has been excess or falsehood. Once, however, one has adopted the kind of view that all signs have ceased, with the canon of Scripture, or with the apostolic ministry of the early church, one is left with no alternative but to attribute every reappearance of signs to Satan or to mass psychology. It is the more sad when we realize that there is neither foundation in the Bible for such a view, nor evidence for it in church history. The true church of God has a heavenly and spiritual character. It is, after all, the body of Christ, and therefore the miraculous is commonplace. It is the overriding of the throne of God in this fallen order, and should be commonplace. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven so on earth. How can we be joined to a risen head? How can we be seated with Christ in heavenly places? How can we be born into the kingdom of God which one day is outwardly going to come and not know the overriding in our own lives and circumstances of the the purpose of God and the will of God, the overriding of all opposition and evil? It is not that we should always be looking for cheap thrills or sensations. God preserve us from such an attitude. The greatest miracle is beyond any doubt our salvation, our new birth, and our union with God in Christ. It would seem, however, a very strange thing to me if the victorious, ascended Christ, who is with us to the end of the age, were never at any point to manifest himself or give tokens that it is his word that we preach his service that we perform, and his purpose that we fulfill. To me, the conclusion is inevitable, both from the words of Christ himself and from the rest of the New Testament, as well as the evidence from church history, that signs will accompany living faith so long as the body of Christ is in existence on this earth. Then will you notice that they will cast out demons. um, Matthew 16 verse 17 they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, if they drink any deadly poison it shall not hurt them, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. There are five signs enumerated here. They are not exhaustive, but representative. That's very important. There are a number of the signs that are not mentioned here. These are not the only signs that follow, accompany those who believe. There are many, many others. We've only got to look through Acts to see them. We don't hear about the raising of the dead. That has happened. It's happened in, in this century. Uh, in some places, we don't we have heard of some of the other miracles uh, that have taken place uh, in other ways. Uh, but uh, it is representative. The first and the last sign here, that is casting out demons and laying hands on the sick so that they recover, we have many examples of in the ministry of Christ and in the Book of Acts. The second. We have no example in Christ's ministry, speaking in new tongues. But many in the book of Acts, and quite an amount of teaching in the letters. The third and fourth sign, picking up uh, snakes and uh, not being harmed by drinking any deadly poison we have hardly any example of, either in the ministry of Christ recorded or in the book of Acts, except For Acts chapter 28 from verses 1 to 6, where when the apostle Paul was carrying sticks to light a fire, a viper who was warmed by the fire came out and fastened onto his hand. And uh, the Maltese um, thought that uh, he must be a criminal since this was a judgment of God. But when they saw that he didn't swell up and fall down and die, they changed their mind and said he was a god. And we have got one example of that. These two signs have given much concern to some. Because they cannot think what on earth two such signs as this are doing with, why didn't the Lord say they shall prophesy? Or or other more more? Why say they shall pick up snakes? And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not harm them. In... Some therefore feel that uh, this is rather strange and is a sign that perhaps it's not so authentic, these verses, as the rest of Mark. Um, It has also given rise to some of the strangest extreme sects in Pentecostalism that have ever existed, Uh, those hillbilly um, sects. Uh, where they pick up snakes, I suppose you've heard of them, where they all sort of praise and worship the Lord, they have the snakes in baskets, and then when everyone's in an absolute fervor, they come up, open the thing, and pick the snake up, you see. What it's supposed to do, I don't know. (laughs) Um, But anyway, they feel that they should do this because of this scripture. I, I can't believe that that's what we're meant to do. Now there are two things about this third and fourth sign. Snakes – listen carefully – snakes were a very real hazard in routine life in New Testament times, still are in the East. Um, uh, Snakes come indoors, you know, in colder weather. Any of those who've been out uh, aboard, you know that. And uh, it's part of life, just like finding uh, a mouse in the kitchen. Um, you find a snake and the only problem is that whereas a mice can give you a deadly fright uh, a a, a snake may give you a deadly bite that was entirely inspired suddenly Um, it is interesting that some have suggested that this picking up of deadly snakes this picking up of snakes really means taking them away the second thing about poisoning, which may amuse you, but which is a which was a terrible fact about New Testament times and still is so in the East, poisoning people was the normal way of getting rid of people or relatives who were an embarrassment. <laughs> that is absolutely true. I know cases in Egypt where people who found the Lord where poison was put in their food to destroy them. It's a, those of you who know anything about uh, th- those areas of the earth which are primitive will know that this is one of the things. Now what I'm saying is this, we, thus we have two signs not so much to do with preaching as the lives of those who believed. I think that's rather wonderful. We have casting out demons, which is surely a tremendous thing. (coughs) For that is a real confrontation with the powers of darkness. The other end, we have laying hands on the sick and their recovering. That is another wonderful thing, isn't it? We have speaking with new tongues, which can be a sign to the unbeliever. It can be prophecy to the church, but normally is the language of worship and devotion toward God. And then we have two signs which are really to do with our preservation in routine life. Now, what does it all really mean? What a wonderful promise the Lord has made to all who have living faith. This service to which he has commissioned us is not a matter of being on the defensive of apologetics. True, he will preserve us from all evil as we fulfill His commission, whether it's snakes or poison. He has given us divine power in His name to go over to the offensive, to go into every part of the world which lies in the evil one, to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord, and to see His mighty workings through our service. May the Lord... Kindle in us all living faith to really expect signs, not only that follow preaching, but signs that accompany those who believe. Now we come to the last two verses, and I will just seek in these last few moments just to cover them. The ascension of the servant of the Lord. Two wonderful verses. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. In these two verses, Mark records for us simply the fact of the ascension. After those 40 days, the Lord Jesus was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. It was the greatest single event in human history. The servant of the Lord had won the battle and was now seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, the place of supreme power and authority. "...the disciples, in obedience to the commission which they had received, went out and preached the good news concerning Jesus Christ everywhere and to everyone. They discovered that as they obeyed to go out in simple faith, their risen and ascended Lord was working with them, confirming his word which they preached by the signs which followed close upon it." Now, just one or two things about these verses. Firstly, received up into heaven... What glorious words received up into heaven. There was no battle now, no conflict now, no withstanding now. The servant of the Lord was finally received back by the whole host of heaven. At his incarnation, he had left heaven. And at his baptism, Confirmed the choice to die that we might be saved. At his transfiguration, he again turned away from heaven when he could have stepped back into it. And at Gethsemane, finally confirmed his choice to go through with Calvary. He had plumbed the depths of darkness and forsakenness for our salvation. Now heaven receives him. It was the coronation of all coronations. What joy there must have been in heaven. I cannot imagine if any of you have ever lived through a coronation and heard the cheering and screaming and sort of general um, being beside themselves or the crowds. um, What must it have been like when finally the Lord Jesus was received back to heaven? And then, notice, into heaven, verse 19. He went through the heavens, it says in Hebrews 4.14. Now, this is a very interesting little word, heavens, here, because it covers a whole range of ideas. First, the physical heavens, which we see. Secondly, um, the idea that the heavens are high, something above them. And then thirdly, it covers the idea of the spiritual reality. Now, I'll just give you those verses. We won't have time to look them up. But first of all, it says quite explicitly in Hebrews 4 and verse 14 that he passed through the heavens to the right hand of God. And, of course, we're told in Acts 1 and verse 9 that he was received up into heaven and a cloud received him out of sight and that he will come back in the same way. And it says also in Luke 24 and verse 51 that he was received up into heaven uh, as they looked up. Then it says he has been made higher than the heavens, Hebrews 7 verse 26. It says he has been given a name uh, that is higher than the heavens. And of course that we find in a number of places. And then it says in Hebrews 8 and verse 1, he has sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And 1 Peter 3 and verse 22 says that he has been received into heaven itself. There to sit down. Angels, principalities, and demons being made subject unto him. All these ideas, from the literal heavens to the spiritual reality, are covered by this one word. Thirdly, the right hand of God. Verse 19. This... Phrase always speaks of power and authority. The right hand was always uh, the position reserved by kings for the most influential and powerful peers of the realm, those who most clearly represented the king. Now to this day we still reserve the right hand even in homes when we have a guest at the table, if you observe any manners, Um, if you have a guest, well, today I have to say that because in so many places no one observes anything now, Um, but I mean if you have a guest, um, normally you always make sure that the most honoured guest sits at the right hand of the host, or hostess, Um, and I mean host person, Um, uh, but you know what I mean. The right hand, it was always reserved for the most influential peers of the realm by the king. The servant of the Lord has taken the place of all authority in the kingdom of God and the government of God. Fourthly, sat down a picture of absolute rest. The work of our salvation is completed and finished. The purpose of God has been realized in him. The enemies of God have been frustrated and thwarted. The servant of the Lord has been vindicated. It does not mean that he no longer serves. He serves now from the throne. The first in the government of God. Now I think that's very wonderful when you think of it like that. The first in the government of God. He will bring many to share his throne and serve with him in the divine administration for all eternity. That's what we're being trained for. If only we will let him do the work. What about Psalm 110? Oh, I'll put, it'll be in the notes, so if you really want to follow it up, you can go through it. But that's where it exactly says, they, they offer themselves willingly in the day of his power, when it speaks of his ascension, ruling in the midst of his enemies. It says they offer themselves willingly in the day of his power. Are you? Are you? Are you ready for God to train you, to put you through the discipline that is required? All the very hard training of the Spirit of God, the school of God, in order to bring us to the place where we can share in eternal administration and government in the kingdom. Fifthly, they went out and preached everywhere. Verse 20, Mark's gospel commenced with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It ends with the going forth of these dear disciples in union with their risen and ascended Lord to preach that same gospel. They had been so slow to hear and so slow to understand, so full of self, now broken of their own strength through his death and burial and resurrection and by the indwelling and empowering of the Holy Spirit, these disciples, were to turn the world upside down. Every one of us who has been saved in the 20th century, every one of us sitting in this room tonight, is indebted to those self-same believers for our experience of the salvation of God. We trace it back to them. How beautifully it is put in the edition. After that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable gospel of eternal salvation. Sixthly, while the Lord worked with them, verse 20, he was not merely supporting them or blessing them or even standing behind them. The risen servant of the Lord was with them. They had become, by the cross and the Spirit, members of his body. The means by which his word would go forth, his work would be accomplished, his authority and power known, and his beauty and grace would be revealed. I can't help feel when you think of those lovely words, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age that we are to expect the signs which follow. Can we expect that Lord who was the same yesterday, today and forever, to be actually with us and not know his working in such ways? That leads me to this last phrase and confirm the word by the signs which followed. The word of the cross which they preached the declaration that Jesus was Lord of all was confirmed by the signs which followed closely upon the preaching. From henceforth, no power on earth or in hell could withstand or overcome the service of those Christ had saved, so long as they remained in the practical good of union with him. So it has been throughout the history of the church and will be till he comes again. Shall we pray? Father, how we praise thee and worship thee for all this, wonderful record that thou hast so faithfully watched over so that it has come to us Lord and O oh, Father we want to pray that thou would write it upon our hearts root out that evil heart of unbelief that hardness of heart Lord that lurks in us all may it be dealt with give us tender open hearts dear Lord to thyself and living dynamic Faith. And O oh, Father, may we know something of those signs which accompany those who believe. Dear Lord, we give ourselves afresh to Thee. We thank Thee that Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast distributed gifts among men. O oh, Father, We thank thee for our Lord Jesus Christ. Wilt thou, we pray, pour into our heart of thy spirit in a new way. And we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.